Well, old Billy Bob, you know Billy Bob, he was running moonshine across the state line. One night he was driving with the contraband right there in the front seat with him, and a policeman noticed him weaving and bobbing across the road and pulled him over. Son, what's in the jug? He asked Billy Bob. Billy Bob in turn said, Officer, it's just water. Just water? He says, yes, I'm on my way to church to worship Jesus. It's just water. The officer grabbed the jug. He lifted it up to his nose, took a big whiff, took a little bit of a sip. He said, son, that's not water. That's white lightning. Billy Bob shouted, well, praise the Lord. He's done it again. Well, Billy Bob was referring to the story that we find right here in John chapter 2. On the third day, that is the third day after Jesus and his new disciples had left from John's baptismal site there on the Jordan, Jordan River, they had moved north now to Galilee and it had taken three days to get there. And there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, wedding feasts in the first century usually lasted an entire week, seven days. (laughs) My daughter got married a couple of years ago, and I thought it was expensive to cater a reception one afternoon. Imagine throwing a party for seven days. This was a big deal, an extravaganza. Well, this particular bride and groom, they must have known Mary and her family. Mary was at the wedding. And this couple had made a very, very important decision, probably without even realizing its significance. We're told now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Jesus was on the invitation list. And let me say to all married couples here tonight, here is the best thing you can do for your marriage. Invite Jesus to the wedding. Include him in your marriage from the very start. Marriage was God's idea. And who better to help you in your marriage Then God made flesh, Jesus Christ. Have you invited Jesus to your marriage? When you invite Jesus to the marriage, here's what you get. You get a pastor who will always remind you of your vows. He'll actually empower you to keep them. You'll also get a wedding director who'll keep you both in step and synchronized with each other. You'll get a counselor who'll help you through the inevitable adjustments. You'll get a family planner to give you wisdom in important decisions. You'll get a motivational speaker to keep you all fired up. Hey, Jesus is everything a married couple needs to make their marriage work. It's significant that Jesus' first miracle occurred at a wedding. And you know, I've discovered that every married sense needs a miracle from time to time. We need God to do a little miracle. We need God to interject his power and his love supernaturally into that marriage. Over the centuries, Jesus has proven that he certainly can provide miracles for marriages. He still likes to work miracles in our marriages. Well, like most weddings, this was an exuberant, happy occasion until the wine ran out. Verse 3. And when they ran out of wine... The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no more wine. Now, hospitality was a supreme priority in the first century. To run dry at a party, this was the ultimate social embarrassment. 
Mary's statement here implies that she believes Jesus can do something about the problem. But in verse 4, Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now on the surface, this seems to be a rather stern way for Jesus to address his mom. But understand the word woman isn't actually as crude as it first sounds. It was really a neutral term. It wasn't degrading like broad or dame. But neither did it conjure up warm feelings like mother or mom. This was just sort of a generic term for female. And I believe that Jesus was making an important point with his mom. The time had come here to begin to redefine his relationship with Mary. He's letting her know that the eternal plan of God is not going to cater to the maternal needs of Mary. Author Mary Zoba, she writes of Jesus' treatment of Mary. She says, why at the wedding did Jesus push his mother away? Why couldn't he call her mom in front of the throng? A mother needs to know these things. But then a mother, even Jesus' mother, needs to know the Savior more. And how else could she have found her Savior without first losing Him as her son? For over 30 years, Jesus had been Mary's son. Since Joseph died early in Jesus' life, we think, Jesus had taken over the carpenter's shop. He had probably taken over the role as head of household. Mary had leaned on Jesus for a number of years. For three decades, Mary had Jesus for for herself. But now, the time has come, he belongs to God. He belongs to God's will. And it's time for her to let him go. See, everything is about to change in their relationship. Jesus is going to go from son to savior to Lord. And it's all going to take place in Mary's heart. And you know, there comes a time when every mom has to let go of their child. The transition of turning loose of a child and getting back a friend is a long one. It begins really the day they're born. And it becomes more difficult as life goes on, but it's a necessary transition. Mom, you've got to turn loose at some point. Never forget, your child is a loner. He or she never belonged to you in the first place. Your child is a loner. They're on loan from God. And one day God expects you to give them back. Well, verse 5, his mother said to the servants, Now whatever he says to you, do it. Here's the last recorded statement of Mary in the scriptures. Rather than focus or exalt herself, she pointed these people to Jesus. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. You know, Roman Catholics teach people to pray to Mary, thinking that he has some cloud or influence with Jesus. This is a false assumption. If Mary appeared today, I'm sure her message would be the same. It wouldn't have changed from this day. Here's what she'd tell us. Whatever Jesus tells you to do, then do it. The last thing Mary would want us to do is focus on her, to worship her or to serve her or to listen to her. She would tell us what she told the wedding party in Cana, to look to Jesus and whatever he tells you to do, that's what you need to do. Now verse 6, 
there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine. Notice here, a molecular miracle had occurred. What went into the pots as water came out as wine. Wow. Jesus is a handy guy to have around, isn't he? And the host did not know where it had come from, but the servants who had drawn the water, they knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. Now, here, now here's a problem for you teetotalers tonight. Those of you who believe the Bible forbids all consumption of alcoholic beverages, here the Lord of glory tends bar and serves wine to this wedding. Well, that's what he does. You know, growing up, I was taught that the wine Jesus served was really nothing more than a stiff glass of Welch's grape juice. And it is true that the Hebrews in the first century, they watered down their wine a bit. But it's obvious here that there was some alcoholic content. I mean, look at the host's reaction. He says, usually the best wine is poured first. And then later you bring out the cheap stuff. Implied is that once the crowd is a little tipsy, a little sauced, you know, they won't notice the diminished quality of the wine that gets introduced into the party. This host was shocked that the bridegroom had saved the best wine to last. It's obvious that what Jesus miraculously created in these pots was real wine. Which means there's nothing wrong with drinking a glass of wine from time to time. Nothing wrong with a glass of wine for your meal. The New Testament is clear about this. A Christian can drink in moderation as long as he or she is not dominated by that wine or by anything that is other than Jesus. Here's the truth. Jesus turned real water into real wine. And Jesus is still in the business of turning water into wine. For he can take the mundane the boring, the drab duties of everyday life, the water-like tasting duties of life, and he can suddenly make them sweet and intoxicating. Has your life been infected with boredom? Once there was a flight attendant who announced to the passengers, for lunch today, you have a choice of chicken marengo, beef burritos, or fruit salad. And then she commented, And if you don't get your first choice, please don't be distressed. All our entrees taste very much the same. You see, after a while, this is what happens in life. It all starts to taste the same. The other day I was working out in the garage and I actually had gone back and got one of my old teaching tapes. And I was listening to me. Teach the Bible, you know, preparing to teach the Bible again. You know, when you've gone through the Bible a couple of times, you can do that. 
And Mac actually came home and he got out of the truck and he walked in and he heard me teaching. He said, what are you doing, listening to yourself? I said, yeah. As a matter of fact, I found that the guy's pretty good. And Mac looks at me and he says, yeah, but, but it gets kind of boring after a while. Everything does. Everything in this life gets boring after a while. Like, like this wine, it all starts to taste the same. Experiences become blah. Pleasures become bland. It's just the same old, same old. After a while, life begins to taste like water. But Jesus can turn water into wine by fermenting our lives with the Holy Spirit. Jesus spiritually spikes the punch of everyday life. Jesus lifts us up out of the rut and he turns our lives into an adventure. He replaces our blahs with supernatural bubbly. He can restore sparkle and flavor to life. Remember, too, where this marriage first took place, or this miracle, this miracle of turning water into wine. Notice where it took place. It was at a wedding. A wedding. Perhaps you feel stuck in a boring marriage tonight. Holy matrimony has turned into holy monotony. You know, it's been said, marriage is like a violin. After the music stops, the strings are still attached. Hey, is there any hope for a boring marriage? You bet there is. Jesus can spice up your marriage. But here's what we need to do. You and your spouse, you need to get down on your knees together. And you need to invite Jesus to your marriage. And then you need to open up your Bibles. And you need to do whatever Jesus tells you to do. And when you do your part, then Jesus will do a miracle in your marriage by turning water into wine. Verse 11. This was the beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. You know, it's fascinating to compare Jesus' first miracle with Moses' first miracle. Moses turned water into blood. Jesus turned water into wine. Moses brought judgment on Egypt. Jesus brought joy to a wedding. And here's the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now after this, he went down to Capernaum. He, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. And they did not stay there many days. For the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. My, oh, my. The Jewish leaders had turned the temple into a target. A worshiper, you see, could only offer a temple-approved sacrifice. And and, and they were only available from temple-sanctioned outlets that then sold those sacrifices at exorbitant prices. And guess what they did with the money? They gave a little kickback to the priests who sent them the business. It was a scam. When you paid your temple tax, the priests wouldn't accept Roman coins, common coins. No, they had to be exchanged for special temple coins. And, oh, we can do this for a fee. And for an outrageous exchange rate. And guess who was getting the kickbacks? 
those priests. Hey, these Jews were making a buck off God. And you know what? God doesn't like that. And how did Jesus react? When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. Now, I got to tell you, I, I used to think of this, I used to have it all wrong. I used to think that Jesus just got caught up in the moment that he just kind of reached out for whatever was available. There happened to be a whip there, and so he grabbed the whip. It could have been a broom or a stick, but it was just a whip. That's not true. I mean, think about it. Why would just a whip be laying there, you know? I mean, broom maybe, stick maybe, but, I mean, you don't have a lot of whips laying around the sanctuary. No. Notice John's wording. He made... A whip of cords. Jesus made this whip. I now have it right in my mind. Picture Jesus hunched over in the corner of the temple. He's got some ropes and some cords. And he's, he's hunched over and he's weaving together these cords. And all the time that he's weaving this whip together, he's eyeballing these crooks. And his blood is boiling. And his hands are clenching. And he's getting angry. Hot molten rage is bubbling up within him. Jesus is getting angry. He knows full well that he is about to go ballistic. That this is going to turn ugly. Jesus' cleansing of the temple was not some accident. It wasn't a spur of the moment thing. When Jesus cleansed the temple, it was a premeditated act of aggression on the part of the Son of God. Hey, so much for gentle Jesus, meek and mild. That guy didn't exist. Often people see Jesus as sort of like a Mr. Rogers type of person. Do we have Mr. Rogers up there? Maybe not. Maybe not. Rather than Mr. Rogers, he's more like a Hulk Hogan. Jesus was not afraid to resort to violence when necessary. Here he tosses the crooks out on their ear. Hey, Jesus was a carpenter by trade. He worked with his hands. He had a firm grip. He had strong forearms. Trust me, Jesus was a man's man. His contemporaries would have never referred to Jesus as some nice, well-mannered guy. Hey, nice guys don't pick up whips and go on slashing rampages. People who shake the status quo aren't usually called nice. There are other terms like bother and like pest and like meddler, not nice guy. Remember the Jewish hierarchy, they labeled Jesus a troublemaker. And in one sense, that's what got him killed. Here Jesus is doing a bold, daring, manly thing. Jesus always lived in the moment. He did the righteous thing at the right time. You could say Jesus was the straw that stirred the drink. Verse 16 tells us, And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Boy, these so-called prophets were only concerned about their own prophets. 
And it's equally sad to go into a church when all they talk about is money. Understand what made this racket so disgusting to Jesus. It wasn't necessarily, well, it was what was happening, but what made it so terrible was where it was happening. All this was happening in the outer court, in the court of the Gentiles. You see, if you were a Roman or a foreigner, you could only go so deep into the temple, into the court of the Gentiles. And so if you were coming into the temple, your only exposure then to God would have been the greediness of these temple money changers. Your only exposure to God would be greediness, not godliness. I think today the media is the court of the Gentiles. I think the internet and Christian television and the radio is the court of the Gentiles. This is as far as some people probe. And it's a shame to me that there are ministries that portray God as broke, in need of your money, that that give you more of a selfish, uh, greedy kind of concept of Christianity. I believe that if Jesus came brandishing His whip today, I'm afraid a lot of churches would get whipped into shape. Again, Jesus would cleanse the temple. Verse 17 tells us, His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. Messiah's Messiah's zeal was predicted. Psalm 69 verse 9 is the text. Jesus was consumed with this passion for pure and and sincere worship. And so the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now remember, Jesus had just cleansed the temple. And he is standing now in the hallways of this colossal structure. Herod's temple was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This was a stunning statement that Jesus makes. That, that, hey, I'm going to tear this temple down and I'm going to rebuild it in three days. Then the Jews said to him, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And you will raise it up in three days? You see, the first temple was demolished by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. The second temple was rebuilt 70 years later by the Jews who returned from Babylon with their leader, Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel's temple, the second temple as it's called, was nothing like Solomon's temple in glory and grandeur. It was more of a hut, a shack compared to Solomon's. That's why when Herod came to power about 500 years later, His way of appeasing the Jews, of getting in good with the Jewish leaders, was to expand and renovate the temple. He launched a massive expansion, a huge renovation project. It took 46 years. Now Jesus is saying that his sign to the people is to tear down God's temple and raise it up in just three? The Jews were scratching their heads. This didn't make sense to them, but here was their problem. They had the wrong temple. Notice John explains, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. The sign Jesus gave the Jews was his death and his bodily resurrection. You see, the temple was God's residence on the earth. 
But if the Jews had been perceptive, they would have realized that God never revealed his presence in Herod's temple. For God was waiting on another temple, a new temple. God's presence rested in Jesus, in flesh and blood, not brick and mortar. Thus, the resurrection of Jesus was the ultimate sign. And it's interesting, when Jesus is raised from the dead, the disciples, they remember this encounter. Later on, verse 22 says, Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. It all made sense to them later. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. And chapter 2 closes, But Jesus did not commit himself to them, because he knew all men, and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Notice, Jesus didn't commit himself to them. At the time, lots of people were following Jesus, but for the wrong reasons. He had no confidence in their affections or in their loyalties. And thus he kept the crowd sort of at arm's distance. They were after miracles, not the Messiah. They say the, great sh- the Greek shipping tycoon, Aristotle Nassus, he always wore glasses to cover his eyes because he felt that the eyes showed a person's true feelings and he never wanted to disclose his feelings and so he always wore those dark glasses. You know, you can hide your inner feelings from people. You can wear dark glasses or you can put up a facade or there's a lot of ways that you can do it. But you can't hide what's on the inside from Jesus. He sees, he knows. Here he saw the motivation of the people. This is why Jesus is the only one who should judge. He's the only one that can read a motivation. You can't read motivations. I can't read motivations. We can read actions, but not motivations. But Jesus knows. He sees. He sees all. You can't hide from Jesus. He knows exactly what's in your heart. And he knew that what was in these people's heart was not sincere. Thus, he did not commit himself to them. Now, in chapter 3, we tune into the original Nick at Night. Rabbi Nicodemus comes to Jesus under the cover of darkness in pursuit of more light. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, literally a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court. Nicodemus had a reserved parking space outside the Hall of Hewn Stones. That's where the Sanhedrin held all of their assemblies. Now, this rabbi was somebody. This guy was an Israeli VIP. Verse 10 calls him not just a teacher of Israel, but notice this, the teacher of Israel. I mean, people yielded to Rabbi Nicodemus. His opinion carried clout. He was a rabbi of the rabbis. This man was a scholar and a statesman. But most importantly... He was a seeker. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no man can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus had seen the miracles. He he had testified to Jesus' authority. 
for him, this was a no-brainer. God was with this man. And yet, why all of the secrecy? Why is he coming at night? Why is he coming to Jesus after hours, if you will? Remember when Jesus cleansed the temple, he had thrown down the gauntlet. He had declared war on corruption and hypocrisy within the priesthood. And this had upset the guilty Jewish establishment. A line had been drawn in the sand. Apparently, despite Nicodemus' respect for Jesus and his curiosity, he still wasn't quite ready to be seen stepping over that line. And so he comes to Jesus in typical politician fashion. Doesn't want to make a commitment. Just wants to kind of feel this out. Comes under the cover of darkness. And the two of them, the respected rabbi and the upstart prophet, they engage in a moonlight conversation. I wish I could have been there. Verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now remember what we're told at the end of chapter 2. Jesus knew what was in man. This is how he recognized what was on Nicodemus' mind before he ever opened his mouth. Like all Jews at the time, Nicodemus hated the Roman occupation. And he longed for Israel's former glory. He wanted the Messiah to return and to establish Israel as God's kingdom once again on the earth. Understand too, Nicodemus was a Jewish scholar. He was schooled in the Old Testament. He'd read the promises that God had made to Jeremiah and to Ezekiel and to the Jews who had come back from Babylon. We now call it the New Covenant. And in the New Covenant, God makes three promises. Get this down now. It'll help you as you study your Bible. The New Covenant consists of three promises. First of all, the return of the Jews to their land. Secondly, the regeneration or the revival of their hearts. And third, the reestablishment of God's kingdom to Israel. Here's the, the new covenant. Return. He returned them logistically. He regenerated them spiritually. And he will restore them politically. Now, in Nicodemus' mind, the first two promises, he thinks, have already been fulfilled. The Jews had returned. They'd come back from Babylon. They were now in the land. Secondly, 6,000 Pharisees all across Israel were now demonstrating a very legalistic zeal for the law. And here was Nicodemus' mistake. He had mistaken the legalism of the Pharisees for this spiritual revival that had been promised in the New Covenant. Thus, he was thinking that step three was next, that God was about to establish the kingdom of God. That's why Jesus responds to him, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, because that was what was in Nicodemus' mind. How can I get to the kingdom of God? That's the next step, he thinks. But in verse 3, Jesus slows him down. Yes, the Jews have returned to the land, but they still lack a new heart. And he challenges Nicodemus' understanding in verse 3. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You see, legalism, Phariseeism, 
cleansed a person's conduct, but only the Holy Spirit can change our hearts. So to be part of God's kingdom, it takes more than legalism. It takes more than just outward obedience. You have to be born again. In other words, step two comes before step three. Thus, for Nicodemus to participate in God's kingdom, he first has to be regenerated. He has to be made alive spiritually, for right now he is dead. Now, the term Jesus uses, born again, confused Nicodemus. At first he thought he meant some kind of natural, physical birth. Notice his response now in verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, well, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He's really confused here. In other words, what do you mean born again, reborn? Jesus answered, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now when Jesus talks about being born of the Spirit, his meaning is clear. God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, brings to life the Spirit that's dead in sin. The Holy Spirit quickens or sparks my spirit and your spirit, and it makes us alive again in Christ. The interpretation of the phrase born of water is more controversial. Now, some Bible teachers interpret water as the ministry of John the Baptist. You might call it repentance You have to repent and receive the Holy Spirit. Then then He'll spark new life in you. In other words, repentance precedes regeneration. That's true, and thus it's a possible interpretation. Others say water speaks of natural birth, the amniotic fluids of the mother. In other words, to be born again, you first have to be born before you can be born again. You have to be born once before you can be born again. Now, to me, Jesus is saying a lot more than that, but some people take it as natural birth. Still others believe water means God's Word. Ephesians 5, Paul mentions the washing of water by the Word. Just as it takes two parents to produce a child, it takes both the Word of God and the Spirit of God to produce a child of God. Thus, this interpretation is also a possibility. What's not a possibility... What's not a possible translation is baptism. And there are many who take it as that, but, but, but they, they're wrong. To the thief on the cross, to a man who wasn't baptized, Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. The thief on the cross was born again and he entered God's kingdom, but he had not been baptized. Too many scriptures clarify baptism as significant, but not mandatory. So it can't be baptism. As a matter of fact, Nicodemus would have known nothing about baptism. And later Jesus will say, you should have known these things. Here's what I believe Jesus meant, because I don't agree with any of the above. Here's my interpretation, my understanding of what Jesus meant when he described the new birth as being born of water. He's taking Nicodemus back to the Old Testament, to Ezekiel 36 verses 25 through 27. Read those later tonight. There God promises to replace our hard heart with a heart sensitive to Him. And guess what kind of imagery Ezekiel uses? He describes the new covenant and the new birth 
as the sprinkling of clean water and a new spirit. The two idioms, water and spirit, that Jesus uses here. I believe water and spirit are shorthand for the spiritual transformation promised by the new covenant. And Jesus is basically telling Nicodemus, look, if you want to know about the new covenant, go back and study Ezekiel. As I mentioned, in verse 10, Jesus will rebuke Nicodemus. He says, you should have known these truths, Nicodemus. Why? Because he knew the Old Testament. Jesus asked him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Nicodemus would have never known about Christian baptism. That wasn't in the Old Testament. Thus, to equate water with baptism would be wrong. What what Nicodemus was very familiar with was the water and spirit of Ezekiel the spiritual transformation that that God works in our hearts. Now, verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. He's saying it takes a work of the Spirit to renew us spiritually. Phariseeism, legalism, was a work of the flesh. It was man's attempt to be good enough for God. Oh, you can clean up and dress up on the outside and yet still be dirty on the inside. You see, looking good isn't the same as being good. You can bathe a pig. Do we have that? There we go. You can bathe a pig. You can dress that little pig up in little boy's clothes. But no matter what you do to that pig, he's still going to be a pig. Still going to be an oinker. He's just hamming it up. That's all he's doing up there. He's still a pig. Likewise, you can put spit and polish on the outside of a sinner. But it doesn't change the sin in that person's heart. They're still a sinner. Righteousness is an inside job. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. You must be born again. Jesus states, do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. And then in verse 8, he talks more about the work of the Spirit. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You know, in ancient Finland, supposedly holy men would sell the wind to gullible sailors. They would deliver the wind in a length of rope that had been tied with several knots. And thus, each time the sailor opened up another knot, it was supposed to release a stronger wind. Just superstition. Foolishness. Why? Because nobody controls the wind but God. And that's the point he's making here. The Holy Spirit has a mind of his own. And nobody tells him what to do. Not even Benny Hinn. Watch the flags flapping above Wrigley Field on a spring afternoon. The wind gusts off of Lake Michigan. One moment it's blowing in. The pitcher's friend. The next moment it's blowing out. The hitter's friend. But can you ever predict? No. The wind has a mind of his own. And so does the Holy Spirit. The wind is sovereign and so is the Spirit. He has a will of his own. This is why the new birth is not a formula that you follow. It's not, you can't reduce it down to a set of spiritual laws. It's not just a prayer you plug in and, and out drops salvation from the dispenser. No, spiritual life is nothing less than a supernatural miracle dispensed by God. 
You can come down tonight. I can pray with you. We can pray a prayer. And we can trust God. But you just praying that prayer doesn't mean you're saved. Salvation comes when God in heaven sends his spirit down into your heart and changes you and, and gives you new life. Salvation isn't, isn't praying the prayer. It's, it's not kneeling on your knees. It's not what you do. It's what God does in you. Now you ask him, you believe in him, and that opens the door for him to do his work. But the work of salvation is God's work in our hearts. It's an inside job. Verse 9, Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? I mean, Nicodemus had come by night. He wanted light, but he's still in the dark. Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Jesus has just given Israel's best Bible teacher a vital Bible lesson that he had overlooked. Nicodemus will think these things through. In the weeks ahead, he will mull this over, and he will eventually become a believer in Jesus. In verse 11, Jesus continues to speak to Nicodemus. Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? You see, Jesus had used the human to explain the heavenly. A physical illustration, the illustration of birth, to teach a spiritual reality, the new birth, the spiritual birth. Jesus had spoken figuratively about being born again, but Nicodemus had confused his words because he had taken them literally. He says, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. This is the first of many verses now where Jesus is going to say that he has come down from heaven. And whenever you hear that, understand the power of that phrase. These are powerful proof texts for the deity of Jesus. For sinful human beings do not pre-exist. You you didn't exist before you were born. You didn't come from anywhere. You you didn't exist until sperm met egg. That's when you existed. You didn't come from anywhere. But Jesus, he says, he came down from heaven. He came from above. That puts him in a different camp, in a different category. He's a different, uh, has different origins. That's a proof of his deity. He goes on. He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have, but have eternal life. Jesus refers now to a story in Numbers chapter 21 to illustrate his salvation. Have you ever heard the expression snake bit? Well, its origin is in Numbers chapter 21, when the Israelites were in the wilderness and they rebelled against God. He sent a plague of poisonous snakes. And whatever the snakes bit, these people died. And they went and they cried out to Moses, we want a cure, we need help. And so God told Moses to erect a bronze serpent and to set it on a pole and put it up in the middle of the camp. And when a person looked at the bronze serpent, suddenly they were healed. A look of faith in that serpent became the antidote. And this was all symbolic 
As John explains here, in the Old Testament, brass spoke of judgment. The serpent was a reminder of sin. And where has sin been judged? On the cross of Jesus Christ, God judged sin by becoming sin for us. Now, all it takes to be cured is the gaze of faith. When you look on the crucified Christ and you believe in Him, suddenly healing is transferred to you and you are saved. Beautiful picture of our salvation. Now, verse 16, John 3, 16 is music to our ears. Still one of our favorite verses. We've known it since childhood. What a beautiful verse it is. For God so loved the world, not just a special few, but everybody. The whole world he loves, that he gave. And notice real love, it always gives. It doesn't take, it gives. Love gives. And it gives, he gave his only begotten son. You remember, begotten son speaks of Jesus' deity. Remember, dogs beget, dogs, humans beget, humans. God begets God. The only begotten Son of God is a testimony to His deity. To be God's begotten means that Jesus had a divine nature. And that's that's why God's only begotten means that He was the only God-man, Jesus Christ. No other human being was born with this dual nature. Jesus alone is God and man. And God gave His Son that whoever believes in Him... Notice what it takes to be saved. Not good works, not religious ceremonies... But what? But belief. Whoever believes in Him, whoever has faith, should not perish, but have everlasting life. And that's not just long life. Everlasting life is a quality of life. Everlasting life begins the moment you receive Jesus. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You know, someone suggested that to really appreciate John 3.16, when you come to the words world and whoever, you should substitute your own name. For God so loved Sandy that he gave his only begotten son. That if Sandy believes in him. Try that when you get home. Now here's a final thought on verse 16. Love is always best measured but what a person is willing to give up on behalf of the one that he or she loves. And based on that yardstick, has there ever been a more extreme example of love than God's love for you? That God would sacrifice His one and only Son in your place? And that should prove to you once and for all just how much He cares for you. Verse 17 For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Did you know it's been estimated that every year in the United States, 100,000 people die from diseases that are preventable through proper vaccines and medicines. That's 100,000 needless deaths every year. But oh my, the same phenomena occurs spiritually, but to even a greater degree. For God has provided us the antidote for sin. And the only reason a person dies in their their sin is because they're too stubborn or too proudful to receive the remedy. Verse 18 tells us as much. He who believes in Him is not condemned, 
But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now notice, Jesus doesn't condemn anyone. Jesus isn't our prosecutor. The Bible makes this very clear. Jesus works for the defense. He's obtained for you a pardon, but it's up to you to receive that pardon. You can reject it. But if you do, don't blame Jesus on your judgment. You see, you judge or you condemn yourself. Nobody goes to hell because Jesus rejected them. They go to hell because they rejected Jesus. And this is the condemnation. That the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. I mean... The fellow who's up to his elbows in sin isn't probably going to be the first person in line to come to the Bible study. I mean, if you're sinning, you're like a mole. You want to keep the lights off. You want to stay down in your hole. You want want to keep in dark places. If you get out in the light, suddenly your sin's going to get exposed. It's not that people can't believe. You should know it's that people won't believe. They love the darkness rather than the light. As long as you're in the dark, you can believe your little lies. Walk out into the light, and suddenly the truth is exposed. And this is what Jesus says in verse 21. He who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. After these things, Jesus and his disciples, they came to the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized Now, later in chapter 4, verse 2, we're told that it wasn't actually Jesus who baptized, but it was his disciples who were baptizing for him. People were being baptized as followers of Jesus, but it was the disciples who were doing the dunking. Now, Jesus also was baptized. Now, I'm sorry. Now, John was also baptizing in Enon near Salim because there was much water there. Enon near Salim was further north of the Dead Sea where Jesus had been baptized and where John was initially baptizing, apparently John had gone further north to seek deeper water. In the fall of the year, after the summer months, the Jordan River basically becomes a trickle. And so John the Baptist, he needed more water, and so he moved his headquarters upstream. And the people still found him. Verse 23, they came and were baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. We read about that in another gospel. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. Now, purification was the term used for outward ceremonial washings. And these were the things that were so integral to Orthodox Judaism. They came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. Here the Jews are trying to stir up some competition between John and Jesus. And they point out to John that that Jesus is moving in on his turf. He's trying to take away some potential disciples. Boy, Satan is trying to stir up envy in John's heart, it would seem. And here's the key to combating jealousy. 
It's realizing that all spiritual authority, all real blessing comes directly from God. Therefore, to be jealous of another person's ministry is to question God's wisdom and God's purposes. That would be a mistake. John the Baptist says here in verse 28, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. You know, John knew who he was, and and more importantly, he knew who he was not. He had no visions of grandeur here. He wasn't the Messiah. He was just the Messiah's advanced man. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. You know, the best man doesn't leave expecting to be with the bride. It's not the best man's role. He has a strategic role. He holds the ring. He hands the license to the pastor. He makes sure that the groom is at the church on time. But when the couple says, I do, the best man's job is done. Jesus was the groom here. The church, you and I, are the bride. John the Baptist was the best man. And now that Jesus' ministry is off the ground, it's time for John to begin to phase out. And he says in verse 30, He, meaning Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. It's been said another name for a wedding ring is a one-man band. In other words, there's no room for two grooms. And you know, some pastors and some musicians, they forget about this. Because they start to woo the bride. Some pastors and musicians, they they want to, to get the attention on themselves. They want to be yoked together with the bride. They want the bride to, to be their lover. You know, supposedly, they're just best friends of Jesus. They just point, they're just his best man. They're just pointing people to Jesus. But oh my, it's a terrible thing when the best man tries to walk off with the bride. I'm afraid that's what a lot of pastors, a lot of talented musicians try to do. Who would want a best man that he couldn't trust with his own bride? And that's why it grieves the Savior so when the friend of the bridegroom begins to flirt with the bride. In reality, these people are just wolves in sheep's clothing. This should be our heart, always. He must increase, and I must decrease. Notice, too, here the three musts of chapter 3. There are three musts here in chapter 3. The must of the sinner, verse 7. You must be born again. The must of the Savior, verse 14. The Son of Man must be lifted up. And then the must of the servant, verse 30. I must decrease. Verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony, He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. Here John points out the person who's going to follow Jesus. It's the person who's looking above. 
whose mind is on heaven. For Jesus came from above. It's not the person who's wrapped up in a lot of earthly details and earthly concerns. This is the person who's going to miss Jesus. Focus downward and you miss what's above. I'll I'll never forget my warehouse blunder. I used to work in a warehouse. I drove a forklift. and, And I drove this forklift in and out of a metal coal room all day long. I would be wheeling pallets in and out of this coal room. I'd go through a a doorway that was eight foot tall, and I would wheel into the cold room, and then I would jack up my forks about 20 foot to insert them into the bins. I'll never forget it. I was going back and forth, back and forth. It was Friday afternoon. It was really late. I really wanted to get out of there. I was so tired. And I was so busy looking down that I started, stopped focusing on above. And I remember whipping into that cold room, raising those forks up to put that pallet into that 20-foot bin. And then I just turned around and I kicked that thing in drive and I started out that cold room door forgetting that it was only 8 foot high. And Bam! I hit those forks right into the side of that metal cold room, and oh my, it was horrible. Almost got fired. Here's the moral of the story. We need to be in the habit of looking up, lest we miss what God is bringing down. Verse 34. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. That is to Jesus. You know, Ephesians 4 verse 7 tells us that to each one of us, grace has been given according to the measure of Christ's gift. God gives to each believer certain gifts. We're trusted with a measure or a portion of the Spirit's endowment. But to Jesus, the Holy Spirit was given without measure. He wasn't given just one or two spiritual gifts. He received all the spiritual gifts. You know, God knows we need to be kept on a leash. God gave you and me all the spiritual gifts, man. You don't think it'd go to our heads? We'd go nuts. We'd have our own little agenda and we'd be using God's power selfishly. But but the Father could trust Jesus with all spiritual gifts because he he only did the will of his Father. Jesus became the depot of all spiritual gifts and power. Verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Notice this. All God's wisdom and power was granted to one man, Jesus. God put all his eggs in one basket. And so the the key in life is to believe in the right basket. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God abides on him. And there's John chapters 2 and 3. 